Hi, everybody. This is Roger Castillo. And we just wanted to have a best of, give us a week off as we are continuing to come out with new content. So next week we're going to have a couple, we talk Chicago Cubs baseball. And the week after that, we'll have old friend of the show, Perry. On this best of episode, we're going to look back at opening day, the optimism, the hope. We had Paul Wesner and King Carter who were out there for opening day. So look back on that. Our conversation with Dan Hasty and Jason Beck. Jason Beck, of course, with Tigers.com, and Dan Hasty, the host of the Road to Detroit podcast and the voice of the West Michigan Whitecaps. And Stacey Gostulius from the Lock on Yankees podcast, one of my favorite guests of the year. She was fun, and we, we talked baseball, talked a little bit of pop culture. Great conversation. And last, Harris Fulmer from last month. Harris brought it and talked a little bit of draft, so kind of give you a sneak peek a little bit. Harris brought a really good, unique perspective on the draft that's coming up for 2020. So one of our favorite conversations of the year, he was instantly just comfortable with us, and that made for a really good show. So sit back and enjoy the best of Tigers SRD. Tigers SRD on the Overtime Media Network, powered by Sports Radio Detroit. It is my pleasure to bring in uh, the Tigers MLB beat reporter for MLB.com and Tigers.com, uh, Jason Beck. Jason, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Glad to do this podcast. Yeah, I, I uh, we really appreciate it, and, and I want to just tell people uh, right away that you actually, you know, I, I met you down at a, uh, a Tigers media event with a bunch of their pitching prospects, and you just offered to come on the show without uh, me even asking. So I just want to get your bona fides as a nice guy out there right away. Yeah, I felt like I, I felt left out, so I wanted to join in. I'd heard good things about it, so uh, I decided, uh, you know, I wanted to, uh, you know, whenever there was a chance, whenever there was an opening, kind of jump in. And off season's a great time for it. Yeah, well, and that goes right into it because it seems like it's been a very, uh, at least in baseball in general, it's been kind of a quiet off season. And I was kind of curious. So your, your thoughts so far, the Tigers have made moves, but I'm, I'm curious what you think about what's going on so far. Well, I think it's twofold. I think the fact that so many teams are in different stages of kind of a, a rebuild has slowed down the market because you're not having as many teams quote unquote going for it, which kind of limits the number of teams in on some of the top free agents. Yeah, it's it's amazing to think, you know, back, gosh, well, you know, now we're going on, you know, 13, 14, 15 years when the Tigers were at the bottom of the league and trying to sign big name free agents to work their way back up. And if you talk to young fans now who don't remember that time, you know, they would think about think about that is just incredible to think of teams actually going in and spending big money to dig their way out of a 119 loss season. You know, now it's, you know, the modus operandi is for teams to use big signings as sufficient touches on, on building a contender. And right now we have so many teams that aren't anywhere near that stage right now. You know, maybe the White Sox in the division uh, you know, maybe the the twins doing like some middle level signings, but other than that, it's you know I think you kind of see in the central where teams are either static or looking for smaller signings. And yeah, and I, 
Oh, go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. I was just saying, did, did any of the moves uh, shock you at all? Like the, the uh, not non-tendering McCann and Wilson or the, the signings of Moore, Ross, and, and Mercer, were those all sort of expected to you? Yeah, I mean, the signings kind of fit into you know what we were expecting going into the offseason, that they were going to look for you know, either those guys specifically or guys of that ilk, um, guys who had some bounce-back ability and guys who, while, yeah, they, they signed some decent deals, they signed one-year deals, which offered the Tigers some longer-term flexibility while also giving them some some veteran experience in some positions where they needed it. Um, I was a little surprised they went for, you know, two guaranteed contracts on the pitching side. You know, it kind of puts them in a similar position to where they were a year ago with uh, Daniel Norris kind of on the outside looking in and Spencer Turnbull kind of now looking at, well, is he going to make the major league club or is he going to be a triple A Toledo? But it fits with, the you know what was kind of been the trend right now is that general manager Alavila looks for depth, especially on the pitching side. Uh, you know he wants to be able to have seven or eight starting pitching options, and with guys like Casey Mize and Bo Burrows and, and those guys still at least a year away, you know he was going to have to bring in guys from the outside to be able to build that. So rather than try to bring in some non-roster guys. He tried to build in from the veterans on down. Um, you know, as far as the non-tenders goes, uh, you know, there had been enough speculation about McCann where you know that wasn't really a surprise. I was kind of surprised they didn't go in for another veteran signing to to build some competition in there. But you know, this is really their year to to see what Grayson Griner can do before ideally you get. Jake Rogers knocking on the door if he makes some progress in Erie and then ends up at Triple A Toledo by midseason. So, you know, this was this is kind of their chance to figure out what they have here with him. Kind of what they did in the past rebuilding stints with, with guys like Ramon Santiago and, and you know, guys back in uh, 09 and 2010, uh, you know, Austin Jackson, I guess. They don't think of another example back in 2010. Um Alex Wilson kind of caught me off guard because I thought, you know, given the relief market and given how young that bullpen is, that they might keep him around at least another year and that his salary wasn't going to be too onerous. But uh, they decided that, you know, if you're going to lose a bunch of games with or without them, that they decided to do it without him. And, and you, you know, you, you actually bring up a good point about the, the going with, Kind of experimenting in, in depth and and refer to second base and I think that the the 2010 comes to mind. I think you I think maybe perhaps you're referring to the Scott Sizemore era where he started at second base to begin the season as kind of like a well in terms of a prospect the Tigers had. He was he was drafted in the fifth round and he was the one that was going to start the second base. And I, I kind of look at the same thing here right now where you it, it's kind of a it's a, a between it's Nuko Goodrum's battle to lose apparently but at the same time you have Lugo who I mean, unfortunately he he has a good good bat in terms of swinging the bat but doesn't walk a lot you have Ronnie Rodriguez you have Alcantara who, who might get some you know he might get some consideration but honestly Jason do the Tigers kind of still continue to look for a veteran second baseman because 
I mean, you, you got Mercer starting at short, but at the second base, I, at least in my opinion right now, it just seems like it's the free-for-all. And, and signing those guys, in terms of even when they got Brandon Nixon uh, in beginning of December, he still is the guy who kind of strikes out quite a bit. So is there going to be perhaps even wait till spring training and kind of wait from there, maybe sign somebody late? Yeah, I think if they if they do anything at second base, it would be something like that, something that comes together right before spring training or maybe during the early stages, like what they did on the pitching side with Liriano last year. Um, you know, it's, I, I'd be very surprised unless something, unless the right situation fell in their laps, if they did anything along the lines of what they did with Mercer, sending him to, you know, five plus million dollars guaranteed or something along those lines. Now, you know, maybe something comes together, you know, if, if DJ LeMayhew, for some bizarre reason lingers on the market in the spring training and he's looking for a pillow contract to reestablish his value and prove that he can hit away from Coors Field. You know, the, the hometown connections, maybe you could see something coming together there. But other than that, I, I, I don't see them spending big on that. And yeah, I, I actually do think that the Scott Sizemore comparison kind of fits here. In that because if you remember, like, they did not do anything with Placido Polanco after he became a free agent following the 2009 season because they wanted to plug in Sizemore. Like, they didn't even make Polanco the equivalent of a qualifying offer, which a lot of people second-guessed at the time. I remember, you know, Polanco's agents were saying that if they had made such an offer that they would have snapped up on the spot. But I think there was some reason for skepticism there. Um, you know, there was no even talk of that because they wanted to make a clean break and wanted to see what Sizemore could do. And, you know, unfortunately for Sizemore, his injury history kind of caught up with him. And he never really, uh, he never really caught on there. And you ended up kind of having hodgepodge until, uh, yeah, you know, until he had Ryan Rayburn and, and, and some other guys fitting in. So it's, you know, that was a quicker rebuild than what you were looking at here. I mean, that team was actually expected to do better than, than what this team is. But at the same time, it's, you know, it, it's it's kind of youth movement here. It's, you know, they, they want to see what some of these guys can do. But they are also not ready to hand Dawal Lugo the, the everyday job this yet, just yet. They want to see, see him make a little bit more development in Toledo before they plug him into that role. Yeah, and, and along those lines, not, if, not necessarily if they're going to bring up another veteran. I'm curious if you think uh, they might start the arb clock, you know, so to speak, get some of these prospects up this year. It feels a little bit like they're kind of hoarding them to try to bring them all along at once, but I'm, I'm wondering if maybe you might see one or two of those guys come up this year to help. Maybe later on during the season. Um, you know, Lugo would be a guy who would fit in that. Uh, Willie Castro, if he has a really good first half in, in uh, Toledo. Um, you know, that said, I, I think they've kind of established the precedent now that with, uh, you know, with what they did with Kristen Stewart, as well as he hit, they wanted to see him go through some struggles and make adjustments in Toledo before they brought him up. And even then, it was at the very end of the season. So I think, you know, if they do anything 
with these guys, it's more likely to be in the second half of the season, if not a September call-up. And, you know, speaking of call-ups, too, the, the one call-up that intrigued Chris and I, we, we've talked to him quite a bit, Spencer Turnbull, and we he, you saw his arm slot. You could, he, has, he had a lot of movement. He did well in the bullpen. But is, is he going to be projected as a, a six or seven starter, or is he going to come out of the bullpen? Because it just seems with the Tigers right now, last year – you, you bring it in, so you bring in Tyson Ross in, so that helps fill the void. But Turnbull, it seems like, to, at least to me, at least in my opinion, it seems like he has a good future out of the bullpen. But he also he has started all the way up till now. So where do the Tigers see him projected? I, I give credit to the Tigers where you know they've shown a lot more openness to looking at him as a starter than I figured. I mean, we've heard the projections on him as a reliever ever since a ball given how he throws and what he throws and the adrenaline level and everything. And the tigers all the way up have been willing to look at him as a starter. And at every level, he's shown enough to, to keep himself in the mix there. And uh, I, I think it, it's hard not to look at him long-term as a reliever, given the starting prospects they have on their way up. I mean, when you're talking about five starting pitching prospects in the top 100 on MLB pipeline, I think it's, you, you have to kind of read the writing on the wall there, but they're willing to use the desire to start as motivation for, for Turnbull. And he seems to respond to it right now. He's, he pitches with a chip on his shoulder, and I think it's kind of fun to see. And it's, and it seems to be driving him well above what I think a lot of people were projected of him in a starting role. Now, granted, we've only seen him in that a few times. I think if you put him in the rotation for a month or two and gave teams a chance to put together really good scouting reports on him, it could be a whole other test. And that could be the next level for him if there's a early season injury somewhere here, which, you know, goodness knows with Zimmerman and with Fulmer and with Norris, you know, there's certainly the possibility that, you know, and, and mind you, with, with Ross and with Matt Moore too, there's certainly the possibility that Turnbull could end up in a starting spot by the end of April for all we know. But, you know, it's right now they're, they're open to it, and I think it's, you know, they're not ready to make that call just yet. They, they want him to pitch his way in or out of a role, and I give him credit for it right now. Yeah, and, and Paul, in terms of where you've seen, did you get a chance to see Matt Manning when you're down the Lakeland? Yeah, I did. Um, amongst so I got a chance to see him for a couple innings, um, and amongst the scouts I talked to, far and away he was the name that was brought up every single time. Um, just you know, one from a growth standpoint, I'd be willing to guess. Um, I don't know if he was the showed the most growth of any pitching prospect in all of baseball, um, but his name would have to be on any list in which you're talking about most improved prospects. The growth he went from from West Michigan in 2017, where he was struggling mightily, um, he couldn't maintain his velocity, he couldn't find the strike zone consistently, he couldn't throw the curveball over the plate or even get it near the plate. Um, 
to what I saw this past spring or you know last month. Um, you're talking about a power fastball at 95, 96. You're talking about a, a good changeup that um, probably doesn't have fully the, the great feel for yet, um, but is getting a lot better very quickly um, and is able to throw that curveball where he wants to throw it, whether it's putting it over the plate or putting it in the dirt. Um, it was it was a very impressive showing, and every scout I'm talking to is saying similar. Um, I don't know if we'll see him in Detroit this year. It really comes down to how aggressive the Tigers get. Um, but he has the the sort of you know when you talk about guys you know like moving quickly, uh, he has the sort of stuff where you could say I could see the Tigers pushing him, being aggressive with him, and especially if the club ends up out of contention come mid July, I could see them trying to be aggressive with him or with Mize or maybe with both, uh, just to try and sell some tickets. That's interesting too. Is it's how conservative the Tigers are going to be considering that. Look what happened with Perez now, and are they going to just have all these guys stay in Erie and keep them up as a group? As Chris, if you've talked about this before, keep them up. And does Matt Manning go up with Jake when Jake Rogers go up, or does you know if they if Matt Moore continues this trend, and he gets traded. Do we bring do the Tigers bring up Matt uh, Matt Manning and then just replace to replace Moore if he Moore gets traded? You know the, the only potential scenario where I see Manning comes up this year is if he makes the same level of improvement this year that he did last year, in which case he be, you know, looks like a top 15 prospect in all of baseball. But even then, I'd be shocked if the Tigers did that unless, as Paul was saying, they want to sell some tickets or they want fans to get re-engaged and get excited about the future, which you know they're in danger of, of losing fans if they keep losing a lot for, for several years. So I can see that, but really, I mean, you have to think of factor in service time and stuff like that. You know, unfortunately, fans now have to know like all the different rules for salaries and things like that to understand, like, hey, why don't you just bring this guy up? But yeah, I'd be shocked if they bring him up or Mize, but I think next year it's probably, you know, a, 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 almost a certainty if they're healthy that they're gonna, we're going to see him next year. Yeah, I mean, and another guy who we hope we'll see next year that I, you know, I premature thought that would come up at some point this year is Isaac Paredes, and he, and both you guys saw him in Lakeland, and again, men among boys, he hit that home run. That was one of the last spring tra training games that shot the left. We saw him in the Mexican League this year. Seems like he's hitting the ball hard and everything. And and Ken, I remember something you were saying about that he's not husky. He's a muscular dude. And, and, and talk about his frame, but talk about his footwork as well defensively. Yeah, I think I got in a couple Twitter battles about Isaac Paredes <laughs> and his frame. Um, and the prospect community is late to the party on him, and I can't figure out why because – all you have to do is watch him hit, and it's a super advanced approach for a kid who just turned 20 years old. And um, Chris and I have talked about ad nauseum, did some rather unprecedented things in the Florida State League as a teenager from a power perspective at a place that's where fly balls go to die on the warning track, as I describe it. He, he put up some, some uh, impressive power numbers, exhibited it again in Erie, just advanced approach. He'll take a walk. Um, he'll go the other way, um, and I, a lot of that I think is there, a lot of the uh, reservation on him or questions about his defensive profile. Everybody knows he's not a shortstop anymore. The organization has moved him off that position more or less, and now it's really a question, is he going to play second base or third base? Uh, I don't care. He's going <laughs> he's, he's to hit. It, it, it's a matter, is he going to be a 20 home run guy or a 30 home run guy? Whatever. He's, he's going to be a high on base guy. 
Um, he's going to be a middle-of-the-order bat, and he, he belongs in the top 100, if not top 50, of any prospect list as far as I'm concerned. He's one of the – I talk about being bearish on prospects. He's not one of those that I'm bearish on. Like, that kid can hit. And, Paul, same same question to you. I mean, what would you see back there in terms of his footwork and just his, his body makeup as well? Yeah, so, you know, one of the, the interesting things, and, you know, Kena touched on, like, Paredes is now, you know, 20 years old. Um, people forget, especially when you're talking about kids that are coming to the, the States um, from the Dominican, in his case, you know, from Mexico, um, how big of a culture shock this can be to a lot of these kids and how difficult it can be to adapt, especially, you know, some of the kids come over um, and they're basically just living straight out of the dorms because, you know, they weren't handed a bit large signing bonus and basically what they can afford to do is uh, hang out in their dorm room and, you know, play video games. Uh, but for guys that, you know, were handed, you know, sizable bonuses, you know, they have some flexibility to, to go out and see some things. And, you know, in many cases, you know, these kids grew up, um, you know, in, in very difficult or challenging environments. And so you talk about that and give a kid, you know, a, a six-figure chunk of money and put in his bank account and sort of let him loose him in, uh, you know, middle America or, you know, wherever he is, you know, Lakeland, Erie, what have you. Um, having 24-hour McDonald's where you can just walk up and buy, you know, two quarter pounders whenever you want, um, you know, those are things that you forget that these kids are, these are kids and they're being exposed to a very different world. So, you know, when you talk about, oh, there's questionable makeup with Paredes and, oh, he's got a little bit of, you know, baby fat or bad weight on him. I, I think the, the latter part, especially last year, was probably true to an extent, but it's also, you got to remember, he's a 19-year-old kid being exposed to some of these things for the first time and, um as any 19-year-old kid, for those of us that were 19 before, you, you remember some of the things that you did, and, you know, you're not necessarily as mature as advanced. And uh, when I was down in Lakeland, uh, I had a good conversation about, you know, Paredes with uh, Dave Owen, who's the Tigers Director of Player Development. You know, one of the things that he specifically said about Paredes is, you know, you can try and guide kids, and you can try and, you know, help show them or give them mentors, but you know, sometimes kids just got to learn these things for themselves. And sometimes you start to see the way that your body reacts and you realize that 130 game season is a grind. And then the, the Mexican league season and winter ball becomes even more difficult when you haven't, you know, necessarily kept your body in shape. And sometimes guys just have to go through that and they have to learn it. And um, I think that's something you're starting to see with Paredes. And, you know, to me, to me, to my eyes, he looked in much better shape this spring. You know, he did not look to have that same baby fat or bad weight that he had a year ago. Um, and he's still hitting the cover off the ball. And that's just, you know, when you talk about there are certain guys that are just gifted. You know, Miguel Cabrera came up and he was just, um, you know, he had one of those, like, just innate abilities that, you know, you watched him like, yeah, this kid can hit. I don't want to say Isaac Paredes is Miguel Cabrera, but he has that same just sort of natural God-given ability to hit. He has a great eye. He can turn on a ball quickly. He has a great swing, and the ball jumps off his bat. So when you're talking about that, just that sort of natural skill, um, when you're talking about position player prospects within the organization he's not nearly as well-rounded as Daz Cameron is Daz Cameron's going to be a good defender Daz Cameron's going to be uh someone to watch on the base pass but when you're just talking about pure hitting ability uh Paredes is the best hitter in the organization and he's the best hitter in the organization since Castellanos Hey, boy. Good to talk to you. It's been a while. It's been a while, and uh, I know you were popping champagne earlier with the Riley Green debut, and 
got a chance to talk to him on the podcast. Talked about how composed and uh, just seemed like for his age, already kind of advanced. But what a debut, man. What a debut. I mean, you know, I, I guess you don't mind if I open up, like, tickets to the overreaction theater. <laughs> you, boys? Is that okay? Because, like, I mean, you go four for five in your debut with a double and two homers and a four for five. Like, come on. Like, that, that, that is – that is striking, and I really do think that this is probably the second biggest event in the Tigers minor league system behind only Casey Mize throwing a no-hitter in his double-A debut. I mean, this is the, the signature piece of the position player side of the rebuild. I think we can all agree on that right now. I mean, he's certainly the guy that they use the highest draft capital to acquire. So now the fact that he's the one that goes out and absolutely becomes a destroyer of worlds. I mean, he went Wreck-It Ralph in that first game. So, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I I don't think it's a stretch to think now, based on the fact that he's able to do this in his first game, that I thought this was a slim-to-none shot, but maybe, just maybe, we might see him in West Michigan at some point this year, which I never thought I'd say. Yeah, and and, and we look at the West Michigan bats in a little bit and talk about the – we had a, we'll have a couple questions about that a little later, but yeah, any offensive pop right now would be helpful for the Whitecaps, but you talk about these kind of events. I mean, this is something that you don't see very often in the Tiger Lion League system that I can recall following it so closely where you, it's not just, it's not just sizzle. There's some stake to it. And I mean, the Tigers had, they've been talking about drafting for a while and, but the composure out there and seeing some of the stuff that uh, James Chipman was posting there earlier here it looks like he's just it, the Gulf Coast League is just going to be maybe perhaps just less of the week. It seems like. I mean, I think that's what we'll all be watching. I, I mean, when it comes to GCL, I mean, we'll be watching Green. And I saw Jack Kenley, the eighth rounder, had a pretty good game too. I think I saw a home run for him and three hits. So I mean, there's another guy who I think we'll have to keep an eye on too. I mean, he had a pretty good, you know, stretch run through the college baseball playoffs, but. You know, to, to get that guy and, and Green in the same lineup, that, that'll at least give us a very good reason to keep an eye on GCL. And I guess now the question is, how long will we be keeping an eye on GCL? And how long will that focus shift to, to Riley Green, maybe in Connecticut? Because, I mean, you know, what we saw, and obviously there are different places in their development, but, you know, last year, Brock Deathrich, well, he, he rolled out of bed and he hit three home runs in his first GCL game. And, yeah, I know he's a senior sign out of NC State, but he showed that he was way too good for that league right away. And, you know, obviously there needs to be a little bit more body of work with Riley. Like, you know, let's not totally send him off to Connecticut or West Michigan just yet. But, you know, I, I think based on this, it gives us a, the inclination that, you know, it's not crazy anymore to think that, Connecticut's definitely going to happen. I think that we can already kind of agree on that. But, you know, and I said this to somebody else a few weeks ago. If Riley Green ends up in West Michigan this year, it will have been a home run season for him, and he will have established insane prospect status. I didn't expect it, but here we are. So, again, it's not it's not crazy anymore, and I love it. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think I was expecting him to – you know, come out and, and perform well. He's highly touted, highly regarded, and then probably spend all of next year in West Michigan. Uh, but again, yeah, as soon as you, you go out and do this, and suddenly you're accelerating all the timetables in your head. It's like, oh, well, okay, West Michigan for a little bit this year, then probably half of next year, then Lakeland, and then he's in the area, and then the majors. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, and I'm so uh, glad yeah. you mentioned the timetables, too, because, like, 
you know, how many people were just kind of bemoaning the fact that with all the talent in double A that the Tigers went with a high school kid at fifth overall, and maybe they could have gone with a college bat that wasn't as highly regarded, but the four guys that I think people wanted were already off the board by that point. So, you know, they took Riley green and, I will admit, like over the past week, I was kind of keeping an eye on what C.J. Abrams was doing yeah. for the Padres, and it was just sucking little pieces of my soul out every single day. <laughs> so now being able to see this, you know, you think about the timetable and you go, okay, yeah, Casey Mize and Matt Manning will be in Detroit probably this time next year. I think we can agree that that's, you know, assuming everybody stays healthy, which I know is a bit shaky at the moment, but I think that's a realistic time frame. But you know, how fast can a guy like Riley Green catch up to, to that group? Well, maybe it won't take as long as we initially thought. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I was watching those Abram stats, too, and I'm like, oh, boy, he's like 9 for 12 in his first three games. But I think, yeah, if anything, it kind of tells us that, that the Gulf Coast League is maybe not even the equivalent of, like, the showcase circuit for high schoolers. So, but, uh, yeah, I mean, these guys were, were top 10 picks for a reason, and... Uh, yeah, like you said, it's 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 cause for excitement, and it's good. The Tigers fans need that uh, <laughs> in any way they can get it right now. I remember somebody saying they were giving them like a 70-grade hit tool. Maybe it was a Fangraphs guy. And they said that giving a high school kid a 70-grade hit tool is just like just not something they do. And uh, I think we kind of figured out why they considered that. So <laughs> all's well that ends well. Yeah. So the uh, one thing I wanted to talk about, since you are you're, you're there covering the, the Whitecaps all day, every day, uh, is, is focus a little bit on what they're doing this year. And, and one of the things, one of the good things about the low minors, and all the way up to Double A now, I guess, is that they split the season in two. So uh, you could kind of shake off a rough first half like the Whitecaps did, and uh, hope that they start the second half better. But uh, not so much there either. <laughs> I, I think yeah. uh, they go 0 for four, get no hit uh, in the first part of the second half. Um, yeah, what, was it rough, the word that you used? Rough? Yeah, that might yeah. be underselling it a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> so, you know, I, I, look, you're right. It splits into two. And, look, I mean, this this version of the Whitecaps were a lot younger than any other team that I've at least been a part of during my time in West Michigan. And, you know, the, the core of players has seemingly always been a group of college kids. This year it was Parker Meadows, 19 years old, Wenzel Perez, 19 years old, you know, Jose King, 20 years old, he's already down in Connecticut. So, like, you know, they, they clearly had the core of their team much, much younger. And I think we kind of saw this coming for a while. Like, the Tigers started getting really aggressive about a year and a half ago with their prospects. Like, all of a sudden, guys who would typically play the full season in West Michigan, like, here's a perfect example. Look at what Nick Ames is doing in Lakeland. So, Ames came to West Michigan and just crushed it for the first six weeks. Typically, that kind of guy used to stay in West Michigan the whole year. That doesn't happen anymore. So now, and Dave Littlefield said this too, like these guys adhere to strict age guidelines when it comes to if you are this old, you need to be at this level. So I think that's one reason why guys will move a lot quicker now. So, you know, if, if Riley Green's in West Michigan at, you know, 18 years old, that's saying something, but they usually want guys in West Michigan by about 20 or 21 years old. And I think that's the reason why they assigned guys like Nick Quintana to West Michigan, Andre Lipsius to West Michigan. You know, the Tigers second and third round picks literally didn't play anywhere else and just came 
right to the white caps. And I think that's all kind of boiling down to this age model that they have. So, you know, that doesn't surprise. And, you know, I think they're just trying to catch up with the rest of baseball in that regard. And Nick, I mean, and look at Ames numbers too. They're still top five among all the batting averages in the Midwest league. And that's saying something considering what's been going down something special with Bowling Green and some of the Tampa prospect, Tampa Bay prospects that just dominated the all-star game. That it's just, it was eight or nine, it was nine guys. I believe nine prospects from that team that made the All-Star game in the Midwest League. It's something ridiculous. But Ames made such an impact to still be in, among the top ten hitters in, in the Midwest League. It's saying something, and, and it's a bright spot, too. But um, before we get to the new new names on there, I just want to talk about a little bit about the pitching that's going on right now. Uh, we had uh, Matt Shockon uh, from Detroit News who was doing an article on Hugh Smith. Hugh Smith going out there uh, pitching pretty well. Who are some other pitching surprises or who, who's been kind of like Chris and I talked about? I thought Adam Wolf would get off to a good start. Hasn't been the case yet, but in terms of pitching surprises or starters out there, who has uh, really stood out to you, Dan? You know, when it comes to West Michigan, um, you know, it, it is a team. I mean, we have to look at it for the facts, right? I mean, the Whitecaps have one of the you know highest ERAs in all the Midwest League. So, there really isn't a whole lot in terms of surprises. I think, if anything, the surprises might be guys who were billed to, to be a little bit better and, and haven't performed to what we thought. Um, but in terms of just guys that have, have, have impressed, uh, I'd say Robbie Wellhaff is probably a guy like that. Uh, he is 24 years old, so I, I don't know how much is there long term. But, you know, he's, he's got an ERA, you know, under two on the year between two levels so he, he's come out and I think he struck out 16 batters his last two games and that's like 11 innings combined so that's not bad um out of the bullpen uh, I do like this story uh, I'm always a, a sucker for a Michigan guy so uh Wayne State Warrior Jared Toby <laughs> who uh who was and uh he's actually been pretty good uh lefty I wouldn't call it a delivery but kind of like delivery just very difficult on left-handed hitters and he's had a lot of success against lefties so you know in a year where their bullpen has really struggled he's been one of the the few bright spots and he hasn't been immune to it either he gave up back-to-back home runs that tied and lost the game on Sunday in Lake County so you know it's it's kind of affecting everybody right now but I would say of all the the relievers I think Toby's probably been the, the best yeah, you know, I, I came into the year kind of hopeful for the rotation. Uh, you know, things have happened. Roger mentioned that, that Wolf hasn't been uh, what we expected. You know, I, I typically assume that college lefties are just going to come in and dominate. But uh, I, I'm a fan of Wilhel Hernandez, at least uh, sometimes. He seems to be kind of inconsistent. I'd like to see the, the curveball tighten up a little bit more. But I'm curious what you've seen about him and uh, if you expect to see Carlos Guzman again this year. Yeah, you know what? I don't know about Guzman, honestly. Um, I'm a little worried about that because, you know, when he came out of the ball game, you know, it just it just had an ominous feel to it. Um, you didn't really see him pointing to any specific place, and there really was no hesitation. I mean, as soon as as soon as they came out to look at him, they were already motioning to the bullpen. So clearly, whatever it was was something that is a significant concern for them. I don't know if we see him this year. Um, I guess I guess no news is good news at this point because what are we about maybe a month removed from that we yeah. haven't heard about any 
any type of surgery or anything like that. So maybe that's a, a positive and maybe they're trying to, to let him rehab it through maybe rest or maybe a therapy program. But so um, I don't know about Guzman. Um, Will Kell is, is interesting. Um, I think, you know, I think people expected a little bit more from Will Kell now that he had a little time in the Midwest league under his belt last year. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, the, the kind of the, the story on Will Kell has always been, it's going well until it's not. Meaning, basically, Will Kell's the kind of guy that can go get seven or eight guys out in a row. And then the moment he puts on a runner, things just have tended to snowball for him. So he needs to be able to work out of jams and not be able to, and not really kind of succumb to the moment. So that, that's really important for Will Kell. Uh, that's going to be his next, you know, he's only 20 years old. So he still has time to work things out. And his numbers are fine. I mean, he has five wins, and if you're a pitcher in West Michigan with five wins this year, you should have a, a medal or a parade <laughs> or a hug of some type. So, you know, he's, he's putting up decent numbers. The ERA is in the low fours. So, yeah, I mean, he could be a guy that we could see kind of take a, take a turn and kind of make that move and kind of reestablish some prospect status in the second half. I could see that, especially considering he's been in West Michigan for about a year now. Now, you uh, – you briefly touched on the, uh, the, the draft picks that have already showed up, uh, Quintana and Lipschitz. But I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you know, they've only played like three or four games, but I'm curious if you've seen anything out of them to, to get you excited, uh, maybe just in the infield or batting practice. Well, with Quintana, uh, we've certainly seen the power that everybody talked about. He was putting balls off light towers in batting practice his first day on, on the job. So, you know, he, he certainly has it in that bat. Uh, didn't run into one over the weekend in Lake County. Um, you know, it is an ambitious assignment. I mean, yeah, he's a second rounder and yeah, he's got talent, but you know, the guys he's facing in the Midwest League are better than the guys he faced in the Pac-12. So he's going to have a little, little bit of a learning curve. I don't think it'll be very long, but I do think that guys who, who show up coming from the SEC and Lipsius's case or the Pac-12, I mean, they're, they're going to see some impressive stuff when they get here. So especially considering, you know, they're going to go up against guys who have probably been here for, you know, if nothing else, at least a month or two, uh, or they're kind of fish out of water. So they're still getting comfortable. I mean, heck, I think they just met their host families today. So they were kind of living out of a suitcase this weekend, but you know, now they'll have a seven game homestand coming up. And, you know, I think they're going to be a much appreciated asset to that offense. Lipsy has finally started to have some good swings yesterday. I think he had two hits and five at bats. So, We'll, we'll see kind of how that looks going forward. But they both barreled up balls over the weekend. Uh, they were fine defensively. They, they both made errors as well. But I don't think that they were errors that would concern you greatly. There was a drop pop-up, I think, and then a wild throw on a play that Quintana was trying to charge a baseball on. So just, just you know, little stuff that I think is correctable. But, you know, the, the offense certainly plays, and, I, and I've heard so many good things about them. I think they'll have a, a lot of help for West Michigan. I do. And the uh, well, before we get to the questions, too, the the progress of Sam McMillan seems like he's kind of in terms of the defensively, offensively speaking, seems like he's made a couple steps. What are you seeing his progress so far? Uh, he's just twenty years old and, and a fifth round draft pick. And it, Chris has talked about this before that catchers take a long time to develop. But how is his development progress so far? Well, the fact that he has good plate discipline, you know, I think gives him a shot. I mean, we've been watching, you know, guys in this minor league system and all around baseball for years. And 
I think we could probably agree that one of the most important traits is that walk to strikeout ratio. And if you can have it in a respectable manner, I mean, I think McMillan's something like 35 and 36 right now walks to K's. So he has the ability to recognize spin. And, you know, he's not, he's not a guy that goes into peaks and valleys. He's, he's getting on base pretty consistently. Yeah. seven fifteen. So, yeah. You know, he, he keeps putting himself in these driver's seat counts, you know, two Oh, three, one and three Oh. And so you do have to think at some point he's going to start barreling up more baseball. He just hasn't done it very much, but you know, if he keeps putting himself in, in these good counts, I think he almost has to, I mean, it, you can't, you can't continue to show really good pitch recognition and not be able to take a good swing at anything. So, you know, he's he's had a couple of good swings this year, but I don't think it's as many as I expected. But he's still getting on base. I mean, he's a 400 on base. So, I mean, you kind of just go, all right, that's cool. You know, I can live with 400 on base and then figure out – we can figure out the rest later. Um, in terms of his defense, um, he's had a tough year throwing out base runners. I think he's under – I think he's under 10% throwing out opposing base stealers. So, that's, that's a, bit of, a bit of a red flag. Um, but that being said – uh, over the past weekend, I think he threw two guys out in four tries. So he had a couple of good throws this weekend. So we'll see if that's something he can work on and build on. Um, but, you know, blocks a good way behind the plate. I think he received a good game. Um, and that's pretty – that's good for a 20-year-old. Those are those are building blocks I think you can, you can go, all right, you know what, he deserves a little more leash. So jury's not out on any of those guys yet. And you mentioned the the approach a little bit, and that was one thing I wanted to ask you about uh, Parker Meadows because he he was kind of uh, you know racking up the strikeouts the first couple months, and then in, I was looking the last month he's kind of turned into Sam McMillan. He's got uh, 17 games, just eight strikeouts and six walks, but he's not hitting the ball very hard. So I'm, I'm kind of curious if you've noticed an evolution in his approach over the the first couple months. So you know it's funny, like when he got to West Michigan, everybody was pitching him fastballs away and curveballs in the dirt. And he finally started to get the hang of it about two weeks ago. And he went on a, a 10 game stretch where he was about a 350 hitter and they stopped pitching him that way. Now they're, they've adjusted and now they're throwing him fastballs up and they're staying with curveball low. And the big reason for that is because of his height. You know, you're six foot five and, the thing about Parker is that, you know, and he's still learning how to use that frame. And Parker being a speed guy in high school is kind of had the look of a six foot five kid who was taking a swing of a five foot six kid. So you kind of have to feel out the power and kind of help him figure out that, you know, it's okay to take a healthy cut. And we've seen him run into something. He hits the ball really hard but he just doesn't take a swing that, that, that allows him to do that right now. But, you know, I think, you know, pitch recognition is starting to improve for him. You just threw those numbers out. I've seen that too. Um, the, that's the reason they're throwing him fastballs up in the zone right now, because it's the one place that he's having a little bit of trouble laying off. You know, when you're six foot five, you know, a, a fastball at the letters might be, you know, considered a strike back in the olden days. Not so much anymore, but, you know, when you're that tall, that looks pretty appetizing, and everybody loves a high fastball, and everyone thinks they can get to it. So that's kind of what they're using against Parker right now. But, you know, I think once you see him find the ability to lay off that particular pitch, I think we'll see that, that, that surge that we've all been waiting for.
Yeah, I'm a little bit wary of the Tigers fixing something that the Yankees can't fix. But <laughs> Well, you know, um, it seems that every pitcher who leaves the Yankees, Lance Lynn, Sonny Gray, uh, mm-hmm. do well when they leave. So you never know. Well, well I mean, you, you know, that, that's a good point. You know, we, we tend to – the grass is always greener, I think. But there are uh, – we see things like, you know, Chad Green was <laughs> – a basically a non-prospect for the Tigers. He was a starting pitcher. Nobody thought much of him, and uh, you know, they got him in that. I think it was the Justin Wilson trade. And in yep. I don't know. I haven't paid a ton of attention to him what he's doing this year. But for for a couple of years there, he was kind of a lights out reliever. And it's like, what the hell? Yeah, he's he had a rough start. They sent him down to AAA. He fixed himself, and he's been the one who's been the opener for their uh, bullpen yeah. games, and. I think they've had seven or eight of them and they've won six or seven of them with him pitching and starting those games. And he's done really well. Actually, hold on. I have a thing here. Chad Green's last 17 games, 23.1 innings pitched, a 0.77 ERA, 95 batters faced, 35 Ks, three walks. That was after his first inning. So. Oh, there, man. Jeez, oh, Pete. That'll work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's I've gotten into debates on Tiger's Twitter with some of these uh, fans who are like, well, he's struggling this year. This doesn't mean nothing. Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, the Yankees, <laughs> the, Yan- the Yankees fixed him. The Yankees fixed, <laughs> fixed also Louis Cessna, who's, I mean, Cessna's not like an all-star guy, but anything, but he's a solid, solid contributor to the Yankees. And that kind of leads into the next thing before we get to the inside of numbers is that you saw what Brian Cashman said at the All-Star break where he says that any of the prospects were for sale. Mm-hmm. And the Yankees have this ability, and Chris, have, uh, Chris and I in Washington awe, that they've been able to just get this international talent. They're they're able to procate or just tr- just get these talent, ugh, turn around the system really quickly and have prospects come up and contribute. And they have just a bunch of offense from it. So with Brian Cashman, he mentioned uh, Debbie Garcia, who started the features game as put himself in the mix to be traded. What teams do you think? I mean, what teams personally yourself would you like the Yankees to barter, barter with? And what prospects would you like to see? Are you, are you OK with them going with? Hmm. I'm OK with them trading anyone away because half the time, you know, like. Judge is an exception. Sanchez is an exception. But, you know, for the last 15, 20 years, I've seen all these highly touted prospects not do much. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like it's been kind of like a, you know, you expect all these guys to really do like Phil Hughes was, I mean, talked up like unbelievably and not that he was horrible, but he didn't live up to the hype. Um, Eric Duncan, um, (laughs) you know, like all these different guys that I think of that were talked up and then nothing ever happened. So, um, you know, I'm not a prospect hugger, as they say, (laughs) um, as for trading, you know, uh, I know that people were wanting Madison Bumgarner. Um, they were thinking about Marcus Stroman, I'd love for them to get Stroman. I think he'd do great in Yankee Stadium. And I, he has the type of personality that would work well with like someone like CeCe. Mm-hmm. Um, I would prefer Stroman over Bumgarner, which I know is weird to say, but he's not the Bumgarner of 2014. So, True. Um, you know, if the Yankees were to work out a trade, I would prefer it be with 
the Blue Jays for Stroman. I want no part of Trevor Bauer. I know that was another name that was thrown out. Um, he blocked me on Twitter anyway. That really? asshole. <laughs> um, because I, I called him – well, I called him a garbage human. Because um, so, he, he, he is. Well, yes. I, I, <laughs> I think he's blocked most of our friends. Yeah, he's – yeah. Really? I, he, yeah. I, I made fun of his drone um, mechanics or something. And I got blocked too. So, so he's the he's the only pl- he's the only person that's ever blocked me. So, I mean, in addition to that, I know Jose Bautista follows everybody. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so, I always joke that uh, Trevor Bauer's uh, Twitter name should be Bauer Outrage instead of Bauer Outage. Mm-hmm. He's a snowflake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, <laughs> I I I think that Stroman makes the most sense too. I don't know if the Yankees would be wary at all dealing within the division. I don't know if they're they're concerned about that, but I don't think well, they'd have to give up a ton to get right. Stroman. See, see, I have this. I had this fear a couple of weeks ago that they would trade Clint Frazier to the Blue Jays, and then the Blue Jays would play Clint Frazier all the time, and he would just because the schedule's backloaded, so the Yankees mm-hmm. will be facing the Blue Jays a lot until the end of the year. Uh, as we were talking earlier about the whole uh, Yankees only have two more games against the Rays after this. Uh, They're facing the Blue Jays a lot in the second half. And I have this nightmare that Clint Frazier will be like the reason the Yankees are like only a game up against the Rays uh, (laughs) when they're going into that last series, because he's like hitting walk-off home runs and stuff. He makes a great defensive play somehow. Yeah. And you're like, wait, why didn't you do this with the Yankees? (laughs) Yeah. The the currency exchange fixes his defense somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, let's go. Let's let's start with the inside numbers a little bit. So it's a segment that for anybody who is listening for the first time, Chris and I will pick out a number randomly. It could be it could be heavy stat based. It could be whatever the case may be. And we just discuss it and something that popped out to us. And Stacey, since you're a guest, why don't you go ahead and go first? Okay. Well, this isn't really a number. It's a couple of numbers. Apparently, (laughs) the Yankees are 19 and 16 when the opponent scores first, which is the best record in Major League Baseball. And no other team has a winning record in those types of games. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That's, you know, that's crazy. Like, that's one of those weird things where it's like where you like kindergarten test scores can predict what your future is going to be like, <laughs> like the team that scores first, you're like, Oh, they're going to win. Right. Like that's weird. Yeah. Uh, that stat was provided by Katie Sharp. She's like a stats guru on yeah. Uh, Twitter. So yeah, I, I looked at her feed because I wasn't sure what to look up and I saw that and that jumped out at me. I was like, Ooh, I'm going to mention that. <laughs> no, that's, that's very good. That's a good one. Chris, go ahead and, uh, uh, yeah, mine's not nearly that good or that interesting to anybody other than like hardcore Tigers fans, but it's 15. Mm-hmm. And that is the number of players I can see them considering for the 40 man this off season. Um, wow. You know, we, we often talk about how much chaff is on the current 40 man. And, uh, I don't think they, I, I certainly don't think they'll add that many, but they're going to have some decisions to make. I think there are five that are locks to be added. Uh, Jake Rogers, Daz Cameron, Bo Burrows, Kyle Funkhauser, and Brian Garcia. I think they're going to add all five of those guys because they would probably get taken. Logical, right? Uh, but then you've also like you got to consider uh, there's Jake Jake Robson, Danny Woodrow, John Schreiber, Zach Houston, Anthony Castro, who was available last year, and Derek Hill, who was available last year. Jose Azucar, Logan Shore. I doubt it, but you know uh, they don't like to trade for guys and then not protect them. Vladimir Pinto and Elvin Rodriguez. <laughs> so which is half their of- uh, top their thirty prospects right there. Yeah, I mean, there's 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't agree with it. But there, yeah, there's right. some top 30 prospects in here, according to, you know, MLB Pipeline and Baseball America. But, uh, you know, those the rest of the ones I mentioned, I would consider Robson and Castro and maybe Pinto because he's already in double A and he's 21 and he throws really hard. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, who knows what the, this team will do? They might even – there are other guys they might consider. They might – Danny Pinero or Brady Policelli or Angel De Jesus. Like, yeah, they've got a lot of – you know, I, I don't know if they're going to lose a bunch of players in the Rule 5, but it wouldn't shock me if they lose one or two, uh, which is something Dave Littlefield certainly knows a lot about. I was just going to say, uh, <laughs> 2006, he did that, right? Was it- yeah, when he was the GM of the Pirates, I think yeah. he was. He, didn't, he, he left. Five guys off the 40-man roster. That's a right. Yeah, I think yeah. He, he left the 40-man roster at like 35, yeah. and then five Pirates players were taken. <laughs> like, whoops. Uh, so, yeah, that's our VP of player development, I believe, right? Yeah, um, that's correct, so, yeah. Things could be better, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it really doesn't matter right now, but I think it'll make for some interesting discussion coming up uh, toward the end of the season. I think a handful of those guys might come up this year and then, you know, secure their spots like the way Kristen Stewart did last year. But uh, yeah, it, it wouldn't shock me at all if they lose a player or two in the Rule 5 next year. I mean, and the thing is, too, is that with the Tigers in this, which is the, the argument that we keep having with people is that, well, how are we going to know what they have if they're not going to bring anybody up? And they just keep bringing up guys like Ryan Carpenter, who just serve up beach balls or Zach Redinger, which we'll get to in the, uh, the other part of the podcast. But um, it's just it's going to be fascinating because I, I think that the Tigers are in a position where they might even be worse next year if they're trotting some oh, of these guys yeah. out. I mean, think about this, Chris. No. I mean, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I mean, that's a great point. I was thinking about that earlier today. I'm like, you know what? Like, who the hell's coming up to help next year? They might have some some more pitching, but yeah, Nick Castellanos is gone. Cabrera's a year older. I, I, who on the offense right now is like, hey, yeah, he's a key piece of the future. Like it's, ugh, yeah, I mean, man. they have no prospect. In, they have no prospects in the infield right now. So whatever, whatever they make, whatever trades they do make, you're essentially looking at positional players that are going to fill the void, if you will. So, but. Yeah. uh so you mentioned him, and uh, one of the guys you mentioned on there was Jose Alcacar, and he's my inside number this week because he's done something that he did he did last year. He's already walked more this year than he did last year, and that number is 18. And th- <laughs> the thing is, I mean, it's I look at some of his numbers in Erie. He's batting start off the uh, since the All Star break. He's batting that's a small sample size, 409, nine hits, and 22 at bats, but. Before, I mean, in July alone, he's batting 340. He's been doing progressively well, and I'm trying my hardest not to be a cynical jerk about the whole Tigers right now because there's it's just this got to find the good. You got to find the, the little gold flakes a little bit, and you try to spin as much as possible. I'm, I'm not, you know me, Chris. I'm I'm not a bullshitter. I don't. I, I'm pretty straight down the middle with. I just use. It's bats. only a game. It's only a game. It's only a game. You know. Um, Oh, Cesar, well, you have to be mad. Yeah, well, Cesar, are you familiar with the uh, uh, the goalie from the was it Anaheim? It was Anaheim when he was in Anaheim. Um, Il- Ilya Brzezgalov. Mm, no. Oh, I don't know if you're a hockey fan at all. Kind uh, of, but yeah, I mean, I'm not much either. But he had a he had, there was an interview with they did one time, and he's got this really funny high pitched voice. Oh no, like Jason and, yeah. Veritek's voice. You know, I don't know Jason Veritek's voice, but it doesn't sound like something that should come out of Jason Veritek. <laughs> it's, I remember when I first heard him speak, I was like, that's not real. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah it, it's like, it's only a game. Well, you have to be mad. 
And he keeps interrupting the reporters. He's like, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. He sounds like he sounds like Belky from Perfect Strangers. I mean, that's, oh, that's yeah. funny. There's, yeah. There's a pop culture for you. You remember how Belky bowled? <laughs> do you remember? Yeah, I do. I think he, I think yes. he bowled with, with two hands. I think so. And that is like a legit thing that bowlers do. Like the top bowlers in the world now bowl with two hands. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that. Yeah, and it's like, huh? Like, what's happening? That's not how I was taught how to bowl. Yeah, it's the Balky protocol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're uh, anyway. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, it was just uh, no. We uh, yeah, it's just there was a documentary too about the guy the the guy from Australia who started the whole two hand bowling thing. And I guess yeah, at first he everybody thought he was cheating, and then yeah, so Balky. <laughs> Influenced him. I mean, he didn't pull a he didn't pull a boner, you know, from uh oh, geez, page. rest in peace. Yeah, rest May, in peace. Rest boner. in peace. Yeah. Chris has made uh, very uh, references to boner, which, uh, by the way, I know. <laughs> one of my favorite. Uh, we're going we're going off the deep end here, but one of my favorite. I loved growing pains growing up. I don't know why. I think Mike Seaver reminded me of my older brother. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, boner. I remember there was a, there was an episode where they were doing like a school play. And he didn't want to remember his lines, so he just put them in a tape recorder. Oh my and, god! And I just yes. it was well, I don't have to tell you. It was really, really stiff. And then when he was trying to play it, it started playing music, and he just started rocking out on the stage. It's like, oh, boner. <laughs> oh, that's funny. The uh, you know you look at the, the the beginning of a nucleus then in, in the 1980s right before you know the Tigers were building up part of the five year plan that Sparky Anderson talked about and we look at the current situation right now with the 2019 Tigers and the Tigers this year have been it, it's been brutal um, doing a podcast every week talking about the Tigers admittedly has been somewhat frustrating I'm not gonna lie but at the same time you know Chris and I trudge on and we watch a lot of games a lot of bad baseball but you look at a year 1980. They finished over 500. So, I mean, team teams then, it seemed like at least if you, you weren't first, it didn't matter. But finishing 500, I think, means more now. Well, I mean, it, it meant a lot then, too, but there was something going on. You saw guys coming up from the farm system. You saw at least even they were getting contributions to the likes of names that wouldn't be household names for 84. I mean, Steve Kemp comes to mind. You even talk about a guy like Champ Summers. Uh, some of these guys, they, they were able to find and, and, and able to do something with it. Champ Summers was a little older, but still, they were they, they had guys that they c- come in, plug and play among this young nucleus. But right now, you know, Harris, the biggest frustration thing for me looking at this 29 rebuild is the, the guys who have signed, They you know, Josh Harrison, gone. Jody Mercer has been a little better in the second half, but w- what are your thoughts so far with even plugging in guys into the quote-unquote young nucleus? It just doesn't seem it hasn't meshed yet. No, you know, I, it, it's been a tough year, uh, and, you know, from every angle. If you look at the big league t- club, you know, right now the Tigers have 102 losses. They're probably well on their way to 110-plus losses. There's, you know, when your team loses 110 games at the big league level, there's very few positives you can draw from that. And the weird thing is, at the beginning of this year, you know, I, I'm not that surprised you know, you knew it was going to be rough this year. You know, whether they won ninety, uh, whether they lost ninety-nine games or one hundred three games or one hundred twelve games, you knew it was going to be a train wreck. What's got me especially disappointed is what's gone on in the minor leagues. Uh, some of the pitchers have had good years. Obviously, Scooble has has really impressed, and I, I think he's on. You know, he 
he's on track to make a contribution to the big league club, you know, health permitting, if not next year, definitely 2021. But what really uh, is discouraging for me is, is the performance of a lot of the bat, the highly touted bats, you know, the Daz Camerons of the world and, and a bunch of other guys just haven't hit. And that, you know, I look at this team and I just can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. I say to myself, you know, Everyone talks about the Astros and the Cubs. And let's take the Astros, for example. The Astros had three straight 100-plus loss seasons starting in 2011. So you figure two or three years into it, you know, the equivalent of where we are now with the Tigers, the Astros already had Jose Altuve. They already had George Springer. They'd already drafted Carlos Correa. Like, you saw something. You saw something that put your mind – or that began to put your mind at ease – I'm not sure I see that with the Tigers right now. I mean, other. I mean, I really like the draft. This and you know, I think I've been very fair in my critique of the Avila regime. I've I've been I've been very hard on them, but I've also where applicable where where applicable. I've been very complimentary, and I did look, with the exception of the second round pick this year. I did like the draft, but other than the guys they drafted this year, especially Riley Green, I really haven't seen the bats, and. You know, we talk about all the rebuilds that have occurred in the last five years or so. They've all been offense-centric. They've, every team has been, every winning team has been built around its offense. And, you know, the Tigers are doing around pitching. And I think we could end up being very disappointed at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you uh, summed up a lot of what we feel and what we, we talk about in kind of our, our private group chats is – what did I, I said the other day? It kind of, it kind of feels like one of those apocalypse movies where like one or two people know that the end of the world is coming and no one believes them. <laughs> and like so, but there's like six or ten of us and we just keep telling each other these horror stories. Like, oh no. Um, it, but yeah, it's a shame because we do see. I mean, there is there's there's the pitching talent that's nice, but as you mentioned earlier, pitchers will just break your heart every time. Not every time, but like 95 percent of the time. You know, it's just not going to work out. Um, but it's not... I mean, you're right. And, and if you look look at the Tigers' top three pitching prospects, Casey Mize, Matt Manning, and Tarek Skubal, all had a good – I mean, obviously Mize had his issues after throwing 70 or 80 innings, but Manning was very strong, Skubal was very strong. But if, if those three guys come up to the majors and either meet or exceed expectations, that will almost be historical. <laughs> you know, coming from New York, I look back – in the, in the, of the Met, on the Mets in the mid-90s, and we had Bill Pulsifer, Paul Wilson, and Jason Isringhausen. Now, Pulsifer was out of baseball within a couple of years after making his big league debut. I believe he had, he had injury problems. Uh, Paul Wilson very quickly became a journeyman uh, major league starter. And Isringhausen had a long, successful career, but it was as a closer. And I remember when those three guys made their de- debut with the Mets in the mid-90s, I mean, the Mets were ready to print playoff tickets. And so I caution a lot of Tiger fans uh, when they get very excited about this troika of Scooble, Manning, and Mize because just using history as a template, uh, we're going to probably end up disappointed or at least underwhelmed. Yeah, and I've used that. I've yeah. used, and we and Chris can attest this. I've used that Mets example all the time because that I remember Sports Illustrated did a couple articles about it. I mean, Baseball America it was. It was such a, a, a such a pivotal thing, and then you realize with the Mets around that time they still had Jeff Kent, they had Ray Adornias, who was kind of a hot dog shortstop, but they didn't really have the positional players that were coming up either at all. I mean, you had the ghost of 
former Tiger Rico Brunia around their first base, but they didn't really have <laughs> um I recall that, that rotation really was I mean, the best starter on that rotation, I think it was like Bobby Jones. or like It was just like it was after eight, uh, Anthony Young used to make sports every day for losing, like a 21-game losing streak. Right. But, but, no, those, those, that Mets example is great. And, you know, and, and Chris, I don't know about you, but we, I mean, we, went to a, we went to a few games this year, quite a few games for the minor leagues. We got a chance to check it out. And even, you know, we haven't really – in terms of the outfielders they have and just it, – it's just kind of like a – you have the pause for concern, and and Chris, I mean, from my point of view, in terms of the infield, the Tigers don't really have too many infields. I mean, talk about everybody's talking about Cody Clements, but he struggled in Lakeland this year, and and I don't know, Chris. I mean, even in Toledo, yeah. we saw Willie Castro a little bit, and he, you know, he didn't make an error, but he hasn't walked since he's been up here. But I don't know, Chris, what what did you see in the infield when we're out there? Well, they certainly did, uh, you know, draft a bunch of infielders, which is a start, I suppose. We saw. You know, we saw Lipschitz a couple times. We saw Quintana just once before he got bumped down to, to New York or, yeah, the New York Fin League. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so there were some promising things with Lipschitz. And, and we, you know, we saw – I missed all of Jack Kenley the one game we saw, and he didn't play the next time we saw him, so there wasn't much there. We didn't get to see Ryan Kreidler, who was, you know, never going to be considered much with the bat. Um, so, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot to see. Like, if you want to consider Packard a first baseman – and going forward, then that's that, that's uh, yeah. Packers good. some promise, yeah. But uh, yeah, and you know we saw Winslow Perez who just kind of scuffled his way through the year. It, it is it. I think to Harris's point that there's this feeling in baseball right now. You got you got the offensive explosion in the major league and the AAA level, and this just this player development machines that are they're cropping up around baseball with with the Dodgers and the Red Sox and. Maybe that's the Red Sox, but the Yankees and stuff like that. It just feels like the Tigers are kind of stuck in neutral. Like there's the same. They're just kind of collecting prospects and not making anybody better where all these other teams have figured out ways to suddenly make guys, you know, fulfill their potential and make them better. And and it's they just don't see it with the Tigers yet. And maybe it's not fair. We have to wait till next year. But, yeah, it was very alarming to see. I think they had one player hit more than 15 home runs this season, maybe two in the entire organization. Yeah, there's not much there. It's funny you say you bring up that point because I know in your last podcast you had Mark Garosh on, and I, I forgot the exact phrase he used, but I think it's something like winning at the margin. And, mm-hmm. you know, you see the Dodgers quickly come to mind because they, they all go acquire guys like Max Muncy or Justin Turner, and all of a sudden these guys are either all-stars or near all-stars, and you don't really see that with the Tigers. And I would also say the teams that are good at, as Mark Garosh says, winning at the margins, they also draft very well. And the Tigers prior to this year, I mean, their, their drafts were weak, and that's probably an understatement. Uh, you brought up a couple guys they drafted this year, and I, I will say this. I was actually encouraged by what they did this year. You know, Brian Packard will never be mistaken for Mike Trout. However, he has an idea at the plate. He always hit, on the, he hit very well on the cape. He hit very well, you know, during the spring season at ECU. And when the Tigers signed him, and you know he right away went to uh, Connecticut and New York Penn League, and then West Michigan, you saw he at least had a game plan at the plate. He took pitches, he worked the count, he went the other way, he knew when to drive the ball. That's so, so you almost never see that from guys, you know, high school guys or college guys. Tigers draft. 
you know, hitters they draft, and yet you saw it with Packard. So I really, he's not, he's, he's going to be a corner guy. He might end up at first base, but that's fine because the Tigers' offense, both in the major leagues and in the minors, is so weak that at this point you have to sacrifice some athleticism and, 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 and the ability to play in the middle of the field just to get hitters in the system. I mean, you look at the Tigers, you know, any major offensive stack, whether it be offensive um, um, on-base percentage or OPS plus or whatever walks, whatever it is, the Tigers are either at the bottom or near the bottom. I mean, OPS plus, they're worse than the American League. Slugging percentage, uh, you know, they're worse than the American League. Home runs, they're worse than the American League. Uh, you know, strikeouts, uh, they're, I, think, I think they're second in the American League. I, I think Texas has, is the only team with more. I mean, the Tigers desperately need bats, and at least a guy like Bryant Packard, or even Lipsius, who at least has a game plan up there, they're an improvement over what's, what was already in the system. Yeah, Lipsius, and we saw that Andre was making, and Chris, we were looking at some of the video, and he has made adjustments to his swing, where the knack on him, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, was that his swing was a little longer, and we saw at West Michigan, it seemed like he adjusted his swing a little bit, and go ahead, Chris, I'm sorry. No, you're right, yeah. Um... You know, in doing some research on him after he was drafted, you know, he's in, he was a name I knew of, but I didn't really dig into him too much. I kind of, you know, in preparation for the draft, I kind of dug into maybe like the top 50 players or so. Um, he was around, you know, the top 75 or whatever. But uh, yeah, he had a kind of a, a, a reputation for tinkering with the swing a little bit in, in college. And yeah, he looked uh, not completely different when we saw him the second time, but his swing had had definitely changed. He was. Uh, and it was one of those things when the initial scouting report we had on him was that he was like bottom of the scale runner and probably not a good fielder. And it looked to me like he was getting bottom of the scale running times because his swing was pulling him so far to third base that he was just getting a really late jump. And you know, he's actually not, you know, that slow. He's not fast. But, uh, yeah, he had adjusted that a little bit. And I think he was uh, – we still didn't see a ton of power from him, which was kind of, you know, not the scouting report. But – it's nice to see a guy adjust a little bit, and and he still was you know managing to get on base and getting hits and stuff like that. So he like Tara said, he he seems to have an approach and a plan. It's just a matter of now can the Tigers take that and unlock the power that he showed in college. You also have to remember with these guys, especially these SEC guys, they start practicing around Martin Luther King Day, playing around Valentine's Day, and you get to July and you know, August, and these guys are winded. I mean, they've been playing, you know, they've played 70s, especially the guys that come from Vandy or the programs that advance far into the postseason. I know that was in Tennessee this year. But these guys have already played 70, 75 games in the college season. And then by the time their, you know, their minor league season's over, they've played 130, 140 games and been playing eight months. So you kind of, in that regard, you have to give them a mulligan and almost take some of the statistics with a grain of salt but, you know, again, Lipsius, it was at least somewhat encouraging to see what he was able to do and, like you say, that some of the changes he was ready, he was able to implement. Yeah, yeah generally, generally it's like that first, that first year after their first half season after the draft, you kind of, if they perform poorly, you just chalk it up to being tired. Maybe it's wishful thinking, and if they perform well, you're, you get excited, but you don't think too much of it. Like, uh, I remember <laughs> Ray Rivera that first year. Oh, he was brutal oh. in, in Connecticut. We're like, uh, well, you know, you know, he's a uh, he's a junior college kid. He probably hasn't played a bunch of games. We'll see what happens next year. Oh, the, and, uh, you know, sometimes it's a bad impression. Sometimes <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah, that game we went to at West Michigan, Chris. He was he was playing right field, right? Or he was was he in right field or yeah, I think he, he was left field. Yeah, left, left field. field. He made a terrible first, like first and foremost, he made this terrible error 
uh, throwing the ball. And then when he was <laughs> – he tried to stretch into a double. It was one of the worst – like just – it was so bad. It looked like something out of Little League where he was out just, you know, 20 feet. It was, it was really bad. And um, it just got worse for him. And some of the at-bats against guys, he was just – he looked lost out there. And, uh, and that, that – Yeah, th- it- yeah, go ahead. It just it, it struck it struck me as one of those cases where the game was just too fast for him. Like he, he made several base running errors in one game, and it was like, what? All right, what's going on here? And it's you know, we, we've litigated that one a bunch of times, and it, it's for all the world looks like a bust of a pick for sure. And uh, I mean that that goes to we talk about those older drafts where they it didn't seem like they had any particular plan or maybe they just weren't very good at scouting. Like, you know, taking these college relievers in the middle rounds that just doesn't offer a whole lot of value. Yeah, and that and – yeah. go ahead, it hurts. Yeah, I was going to say, quite often, you know, I was left scratching my head whether it was – and I'm going back years and years already, but, like, you know, the Ronnie Borkwins or Wade Gaspers, yeah. uh, gainers of the world, and more recently, like we've discussed, Ray Rivera, really low-ceiling guys with maybe one carrying tool. Yeah, as high as the second round, I've, I've just, it's, I, I've just been confused on draft night. You know, after after they've made some of these picks. Yeah, and that, and that when you're talking about the, the 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 older days, and one of the things that I wanted to address with you is like we look at rebuilds from prior to the past, and even before the day Dombrowski days, there was there was Randy Smith, who is I think in the very in a, in a situation that's very similar to Alavila in a sense that one he's restricted by payroll. Two, he's also cleaning up the mess of, of the previous regime where he had to clean up a little bit of the high-paid salaries that Mike Gillich had to pay for for keeping Cecil Fielder, Travis Fryman, and Tony Phillips to a certain degree. And three, most importantly, he was going to – he was touted being this kind of a dra- – in terms of drafting and, and building within. And what's funny is looking through all this research, there's a – there's a part in the article where in the free press where he's talking about the Tiger Way and having this book. It's the same thing Al Avila said. It's the same exact thing to almost to a T. It's really bizarre. And then they talk about like just strengthening within and, and having making sure that they're paying attention to you know a big deal at the time, having laptops and, and, and like just it looked really archaic and even then and this is nineteen ninety seven, nineteen ninety eight, and but then you look at some of the guys he even picked up, Fernando Rodney. Okay, that you know, he he scored with well there Ramoncho Santiago, who was you know utility player, whatever. But at least in some way, when some of the trades he was doing, some of the things, and this is of course a little different than it is now. But he was trying to get ahead, and then the, the Tigers had a scout team going out in 1997 out to Australia for the first time, and getting scouts in the Dominican, getting increasing their scouting department from two to three, and then getting full time scouts in Puerto Rico. And just doing what I think now was common sense things, so it, it, in some ways it looks the same. But they even then they weren't drafting very well then either. I mean, you had okay, Brandon Edge was Brandon Edge, Jeff Weaver, part of the nineteen ninety eight draft. But then you had Nico Hinojo. Uh, I mean, you know, it's just it's it's one of those things where you look at their their future, the the going into the Comerica, and Harris. I, I it hasn't changed to me watching as much baseball as it has since high school since I was a kid. I feel in some ways the Tigers have not changed at all, period, in comes in terms of scouting. They haven't done anything inventive. There is, I mean, you, like just sometimes when you see them rank in the top ten, it's like, how? I mean, how are they number ten right now with no infield prospects whatsoever? Meanwhile, the Dodgers, the Dodgers, 
have a guy in the, by the name of Zach McKinnistry who's score who's doing very well in double and triple A. He was a thirty three round pick. And the last time the Tigers had a guy that was late round that was any type of good was Gabe Kapler. And that's even I mean that's even stretching a little bit. Gabe Kapler was like a late round stretch. The Tigers I can't think of the last time the Tigers have had a late round draft pick that was at least a two war player. Unless you guys could prove me wrong, but I I can't think of anybody. You know, it's you bring up Randy Smith, and to me that is so fascinating because you hit on so many interesting points. I think Randy Smith came in. You know, the problem was you're right. Randy Smith came in. They had an older roster. They had a bunch of uh, overpriced veterans, and he had to modernize what was a very archaic organization. And I think he did a. I think Randy Smith made he made a couple really bad moves, but he also made a couple decent ones. But what I thought was the turning point in the Randy Smith era was the 97 draft because they had the first overall pick that year in what, be, what was a pretty solid draft. I mean, if you recall, that was the J.D. Drew year when he was a 30-30 guy, you know, over the whatever it was, 70-game college season. I, obviously, the bats were different then than they are now. Right. But he was a 30-30 guy who people were calling, you know, the next Mickey Mantle and at worst the next Larry Walker. And then you had Troy Gloss and Lance Berkman and a bunch of high school guys like Vernon Wells and Mike Dyer. And yet he picked Matt Anderson, a reliever. And I remember the day of that of the draft, uh, I was worried he was going to pick the other Anderson, Ryan Anderson. Out of D.C. Yeah. Was, I think school was like 10 minutes away from my house. Dearborn Divine Child, he was the, uh, the, the little unit. I remember him, yeah. Right, and and I never forget when they picked Matt. Anderson, I was stunned, and I said the Tigers just. And I'm granted he, you know, Matt Anderson threw 101 when 101 meant something, but still, when they made that pick, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and years later, I actually had the opportunity. I sat next to Randy Smith at a banquet. I think it was sometime in very early 2002, and I talked to him about that draft, and it was very interesting. So Randy Smith, prior to coming to Detroit was the general manager of the uh, San Diego Padres. And uh, a couple of years earlier, he picked a, a high school shortstop with a strong commitment to UCLA, and he was spurned. And that player was Troy Gloss, who you know went on to have a phenomenal career at UCLA and then was a very high pick in 97. And Randy Smith said, listen, I love Troy Gloss, and I always thought there was something a little personal there. And I've also heard that Greg Smith – who was the Tiger, Tiger scouting director back then, he wanted Troy Gloss and Randy Smith. Won. You know, Randy Smith was a, was a Houston guy. His father, Tal, was, had Houston roots. He really wanted Matt Anderson, who was, you know, as you know, from Rice University. I asked him about uh, J.D. Drew that year, and he said, J.D. Drew told me what I could do with $3 million. <laughs> and the other guy I asked him about was Lance Berkman. And Lance Berkman was a very interesting case. Lance Berkman, the summer before won the Cape League batting title up in Cape Cod with, you know, with the wood bats, hit about 350 or 360, but only had one home run and he had a bad body. And the following, you know, in his draft year 97, he hit something like 48 home runs. And Randy Smith said, you know, we didn't know what kind of player he was going to become. We knew he was a corner guy. We thought he was going to be a first baseman with no power. And he did slide to the, I think it was mid-teens or late-teens where Houston picked him up. And he said, so, you know, Matt Anderson threw 101, 101 met something, and that's who we got. But I always thought that the 97 draft was a turning point for the Tigers. Uh, they essentially got nothing out of that pick. And, you know, after that, it was mostly downhill. 
Yeah, that was a draft where you saw pretty much he was the only one that was. I mean, Shane Lux came out of that draft, but I get that, that doesn't really count. And then what Max Pierre, Max Saint Pierre, made his appearance in 2010. So that was and a, maybe wasn't wasn't that if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I think actually Cody Ross was 99. Yeah. So yeah, 97 was not like Shane Lux. Shane Lux, like you said, made an appearance in the ma- did make the majors for a little for a cup of coffee. But yeah, it was it was basically Matt Anderson, and we know how that ended. Yeah, uh, with the turkey supposedly <laughs> a turkey supposedly ruining his arm. Um, you heard, you heard that story, Chris? By the way, the, the turkey story was it a turkey. I thought he threw a. I thought he was throwing an octopus on the ice at Joe Lewis. It was, yeah, it was an octopus oh, okay. at, at the hockey rink. Yeah. Okay, someone because somebody was saying it was a turkey that they had for like some sort of like auction or something like that, where they were rolling a turkey. Bowl. I don't. Know, I can't remember that, but uh, it was the '98 draft too. That yeah. was. He, the thing is about Randy Smith, too, was interesting. Even even with like the '98 draft, which he got Jeff Weaver, he got Brandon Edge, he got and and Patty John, who yeah, who also made a cup of coffee, and then ironically, the the best part about that draft was the fourth round pick, which was Andre Torres, but he never, I mean, he was a war player somewhere else with the Giants, of course, um, being more known as defensive player, but but even like you know. Some of the things he was doing, at least in terms of internationally, with Fernando Rodney, Ramon Santiago, and that '99. I think also Omar Infante, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct, yeah, and Omar mm-hmm. Infante. But then it was he, it was like a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing with the draft, where in the '99 draft, Eric Munson, which I, people were also kind of why I mean they were kind of curious about why that one was, and then Cody Ross. But then what's interesting too on the back end of that was guys by the name of Jason Frazier, who ended up being a pretty solid reliever for the. Uh, Blue Jays and White Sox for a little while, but it was the trades that uh, familiarity thing. He would go back and I mean, guys who go he would trade, he traded for in San Diego and then go back for a second or possibly sometimes a third time, and that's where I that's where I kind of was wondering where the lack of imagination was there because it just seemed like he just went with what he he knew versus trying anything different. Yeah, I agree with you. I you know. I, the one trade that really comes to mind was the one where we got Melvin Nieves. And the Braves in the mid and late 90s were really, really good about talking up some of their prospects. I remember David Need, the pitcher. I think that's how he pronounced his name, David Need. And then Melvin Nieves. You remember Melvin Nieves was a big switch hitting kid out of Puerto switch, uh, switch hitter out of Puerto Rico who uh, I think they had him play center field in the lower minors, and then they moved him you know, to the corner outfield when he got, when he got to high A or double A. Uh, and Randy Smith acquired him in the Fred McGriff deal when he was GM of the, of the Padres, and then later on when he was in Detroit, he traded for him again. And I always thought, you know, Nieves owed a little bit of money to, uh, you know, the Braves' front office because they really, really talked him up. At the end of the day, he was a strong kid, good body, but he just, he just never could put the bat on the ball, and he didn't last too long in the majors. But to me, that Melvin Nieves deal was the epitome of, of a lot of the deals Randy Smith made, you know, going back to the well in 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 uh, San Diego. 